are here at 11FS headquarters in London WeWork for episode 9 of Blockchain Insider. Today we're breaking down Bitcoin Segway upgrade goes live, Ethereum's upgrade could be a long wait, more regulators throw their hat in on what should happen with tokens, and we have some top class interviews, including Andrew Chaplin and Taylor Monaghan from My Ether Wallet. Okay, on with the news. Alrighty, back for the news, we have Colin G. Platt. Colin G. Platt, how are you, sir? Doing fantastic, way up on my Whopper coin investment. Uh, <laughs> you're always telling Whoppers, I like that. And joining us, we have Richard Burton from BalanceMy.Money, I believe I've said that right. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So uh, the company is called Balance, and we're trying to make blockchains easier to use. Uh, our first product is a Mac app that's connecting to all of the cryptocurrency exchanges. And soon it's going to allow you to send money from any exchange to any other exchange or convert any digital asset into another digital asset. Um, the team has a bunch of experience on working on products from companies like Apple and Stripe. And we've worked with protocols like Ethereum and Filecoin. So yeah, if you'd like to check it out, the website, as you said, is balancemy.money. Beautiful. And of course, Kadim, the owner, ruler and master of the universe of the Financial Times. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Very well. I've won the Game of Thrones and so I'm <laughs> feeling very comfortable now. You're feeling very... I know it was, a, it was a big battle there, but somebody got involved with their aunts and uncles and God knows what was going on. So, uh, alrighty, we've got to get to the first story. Colin, can you tell us what segue activating means? I feel like this involves some kind of hand signal. Of course, we're talking about Bitcoin here. Yeah, so this is about Bitcoin. So SegWit or Segregated Witness is a uh, recent upgrade uh, that the Bitcoin blockchain just recently took in um, that was effective as of last week or late August, if you're listening to this later. This has been kind of uh, going on for about two years now. We've been debating on how to make Bitcoin take more transactions. Uh, and the recent and ultimately successful uh, thing in the main Bitcoin blockchain is actually the segregated witness. In short, what that means without getting into all the technicals is we pull some bits and pieces out of that transaction so that we don't need to send as much data through the network. Uh, the hope is we can send more transactions. Still a bit slow as, as people can use it. Um, they haven't used very much of it, um, but we hope to see more of that so that Bitcoin can do more transactions as we go forward. Really interesting, though, experiment in how we get everybody together and eventually take two years to do something we all kind of agree needed to be done. I think it's an interesting point about how hard it is to upgrade Bitcoin itself. We talk about the benefits and the virtues of something being decentralized, having nobody looking after it. But actually, it's taken, we started this debate in 2014, how do you upgrade Bitcoin to be faster? One of the big things that institutions throw at Bitcoin is, oh, well, it's only seven transactions a second, it's never going to be fast enough. And now we see these upgrades starting to roll out. And it's seems like it's taking some time to roll out. I mean, Kadim, is this Bitcoin SegWit stuff uh, registered for you at all? Is it making any sense? It's kind of funny that the big, you know, the hard fork has happened um, before the kind of softer solutions to the scaling problem have happened. Um, and at the moment, I'm listening to the Revolutions podcast, you know, um, uh, another good podcast, check it out. Um, and it's currently about the French Revolution and how in the Ancien Regime had all these problems that everyone knew it had around like tax, uh, tax raising and like its internal markets. And no one could solve the problem because no one could, you know, agree on how to do it or get it through. And it's sort of funny that um, uh, here's a solution to the scaling problem, which is a, you know, far less disruptive than creating a currency out of whole new cloth. And yet it's sort of come rather late, so to speak. I don't know if you get the same sense. Yeah, I think that kind of makes sense is that we already had people splitting off into different groups, creating a new currency before the new version had even rolled out. 
the people what we kind of that entrenched i mean richard do you have any thoughts on that yeah i feel that um what we're seeing now is politics and protocols uh kind of merge in an interesting way and how these decision making processes get figured out is informing some of the designs of the new protocols so if you've seen the Tezos um, protocol, which launched, I think that the reason that attracted so much capital is that people saw a lot of the infighting that has happened to get to SegWit and the, the division of um, the, the, the protocol into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And they decided that building politics and governance directly into a blockchain would be a very good thing in the future. And I think that's what, what has fueled all of this interest in all of these kind of experiments on codifying governance into a protocol. No, and, and if you go back to episode one of Blockchain Insider, we actually spoke to Arthur and Kathleen Brightman uh, about the Tezos project and how they came looking at all of the issues Bitcoin was having and why they designed Tezos the way they did. And of course, then went on to raise $232 million. So they did all right. But are they as crazy in love with Bitcoin as Middle America is? There's a story here in NBC News um, where it seems Middle America has gotten me so crazy right now in love, Colin. It really does seem that way. Um, what's what's interesting is to see that um, it used to just be a bunch of geeks like us talking about how cool Bitcoin was or maybe some of us talking about how uncool Bitcoin was. Uh, what's really interesting is to see maybe in part because it's easier to access, easier to use, maybe in part because the price has gone up over $4,600 uh, people from all walks of life have started to come into it, and some people have made a ton of money out of this. Um, so I, I think it's it's really interesting to see whether it'll last forever, whether this is a fad remains to be seen. And I know um, the people sitting around the table have different views on that. Um, but what is really interesting to see is just the number of people coming in that really had no connection to this stuff even six or 12 months ago. And Karim, you were saying before the show, you really like this story. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, purely just from a journalistic point of view, it's it's a really, it's a really, really well done story. It's like real people, um, and it explains like you know their motivations for getting into Bitcoin. Um, I do, I mean, I, not to sound like a sort of uh, it's like a stop clock. Sorry, mm. this is exactly the sort of stuff that should make people worried about what is going on with the price of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Um, you have people who uh, have no interest in the technology. No interest in the, uh, uh, potential uses of this, uh, of this stuff. N- not really a lot of understanding of what's going on financially and in the market and who are simply, uh, buying into it because they've seen it in the news and they've experienced themselves that the price has gone up after they've bought it and they've made a ton of money. Um, there was a, a somewhat similar story in, uh, the New York Times recently about, uh, the VIX, which is like the, uh, the fear gauge of the market, which gives us, you know, sort of gives a sense of, um, how much volatility there is in the market. And they had like some random technician who had spent the last, you know, however many months just shorting the VIX and he's made, a, he's made a ton of money. He has no idea why, right? It's just, um, and it's, this is the sort of stuff that makes you think these are, you know, whenever your, whenever your mom or whenever, you know, some random guy down the road is investing in speculative financial assets, it's not a good sign. And you can understand the motivations here, right? So this article goes on to talk about a chap, I believe, who uh, had got into Bitcoin a little while ago, had seen through 2017 that investment had increased significantly, whilst middle America's income has hollowed out over the last decade. And it's now been a way of kind of supporting a lifestyle and an income that otherwise wouldn't be possible. But as you say, it's been done 
this article makes quite clear it's been done without any knowledge of why or how um, Bitcoin's price is increasing. And in any speculative bubble, people are just as likely to get massively hurt as they are to get massively rich. And we haven't seen the consequences for this yet, but we may well. And what I like about this is it talks about the mainstreaming in middle America, middle of uh, any society. Um, You and I have probably experienced this a whole bunch, Colin, but I'm sure you have, Richard, where people come out of the woodwork and start asking you how to buy cryptocurrencies. And the first thing we say, which we reiterate, is do not spend anything you're not willing to lose on this stuff because it is still extremely risky. Even though in 2017 it's done amazingly, it may not last forever. Richard, do you have any reflections on that? Yeah, I feel that what we're trying to do right now is balance um, two things. Uh, First of all, this is one of the few opportunities where people can invest just a couple of hundred dollars and potentially have huge upside. And that has just not really been available to people before um, in a meaningful way, I think, since the dot-com boom, where it really kind of took off. And there was an excellent book called Dot-Con, which talked about the hype just a couple of years after it actually uh, exploded. And many people realized that when they were investing money in an internet startup, um, that it might not necessarily change the world. But once your neighbor has like bought a new car, once the person across the road has kind of upgraded their kitchen and they're explaining the way they did that was by investing in kind of dot coms, um, you can't stop yourself. And my fear is that what this article points to is we're at the beginning of the real hype bubble. And, and that is when uh, everybody is kind of starting to, to hear of a friend or a relative or someone who's made a bit of cash in cryptocurrencies and therefore lots of people get involved. So, Richard, you are definitely building a tool that makes it more accessible for people who find it hard to understand and deal with cryptocurrencies. How do you take the, how do you manage the responsibility of making it easier for somebody to do this, but also making sure they're informed? Is that something you've thought about? Yeah, we're, we're really designing the tool for people who, um, need to kind of buy and hold rather than trade and, and speculate. We're really not the best place to go and kind of jump in and out of the market or do any things like that. Our goal is to help people understand where they're at. Um, a lot of these digital assets can be a little bit confusing. And so, yeah, it is definitely something we're thinking through. We certainly don't want people investing all of their life savings um, in cryptocurrencies using balance. I, th- I think there, there was something really interesting in there that um, that both of you just said that I want to pick up on. Um, Absolutely, this is incredibly speculative by any measure. Um, the volatility is off the charts compared to any traditional financial asset. I, I had a conversation last week with somebody, um, and a lot of what gets thrown at Bitcoin markets and something else is the fact that it's not regulated. Um, and, and their point was, even in regulated financial markets, a lot of people lose a ton of money. Um, so that's not something that's just about Bitcoin. And we kind of live under this... Um, uh, presumption that if regulators swoop in, maybe that'll bring down the volatility and maybe people won't get burned. But there's still going to be insiders that are trading this stuff. And I think that's just inherent in any place where there's a lot of money to be sloshed around and where you can get an advantage of um, knowing more about the market or getting in faster than somebody else. And I think that um, there's a lot of people that are finding this out because of Bitcoin, and maybe they've never traded another financial asset, which I think is is a really interesting thing that Richard just said there. All of us need to be very prudent. And as we said earlier, uh, never risk any money that you can't afford to lose. It's like going to Las Vegas or anything else. This makes complete sense. But we got to move on. Uh, there's an article on uh, originally on CNBC where Burger King have launched their own cryptocurrency in Russia called Whopper Coin. There's so much to like about this story. Burger King, 
whoppers, Russia, cryptocurrency. I mean, Karim, I'm, I've got to throw this one to you because you of course did a, an article on, on FT Alphaville um, today about it. Can you just give us the like background to, to what's going on here and, yeah. and, and then talk us through your views on it? So, uh, so Burger King, um, along with a uh, sort of a company called Waves, who also have a distributed ledger network, have uh, announced that they've got this new thing called Whopper Coin. Um, basically, you uh, you go to Burger King, buy a Whopper, and then you will, if you spend enough money, you can get a, a, a Whopper coin. Um, apparently, you'll be, you will be able to trade these Whopper coins, um, and if you get enough, then you can get a burger for free. Right? It's like a loyalty points program, um, but there's also a uh, blockchain for, or something uh, in here, and for some reason, you'll be able to 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 trade trade the loyalty points for some <laughs> some reason. Um, and I just, I, I mean, there's two things I find kind of ridiculous about this. One is, um, it's, you know, perfectly fine and straightforward for companies to do like marketing stunts and it's all a bit of fun and, and whatever, whatever. But this was, this was covered like in CNBC and BBC and Fortune and The Verge. And all of them wrote, like covered it with like a, like a straight face, right? Like this is a new cryptocurrency that, uh, Burger King is launching in Russia. And it's, it, but it's, it's not right. It's a, it's a loyalty points program. Um, and there's a fixed, you know, there's a fixed exchange rate. It's one Whopper coin for, you know, however many Whopper coins for a burger, right? It's not like you, you shouldn't buy or sell this at a discount or premium, right? It's just exchangeable for burgers. <laughs> that's, that's it, right? So there's no, there's no money to be made trading here, or at least there, you know, there just shouldn't be. And you've got this. And so, so that it's kind of annoyed me. And, uh, and you've got this quote from there. Uh, head of uh, communications, this guy called Ian Shestoff, and says, um, now Whopper is not only a burger that people in 90 different countries love, it's an investment tool as well. According to the forecast, cryptocurrency will increase exponentially in value. Eating Whoppers now is a strategy for financial prosperity tomorrow. And like, it's that's, that's actually kind of funny. But for some reason, you have people like CNBC treating this, writing about this thing just totally straight-facedly. Um, and that just kind of, kind of, gets my goat a little bit and so there's no way in which the number of whoppers floats against the coin because uh, in which case it could be that you know uh, eating more burgers would help i, I, yeah. I feel it's- i mean i mean burger king could be like all right fine now we, we do have like an open market of whoppers yeah. versus whopper coins yeah. and you know we're gonna let some dude uh you know speculate on the burger market it's just <laughs> i feel it's yeah it's a missed opportunity because i think that loyalty points on the chain is actually a really interesting concept and so to see them kind of go so far with this and, and, and kind of start to suggest that you could make money is is a mistake. I think what's interesting is that instead of being stored in a private database in a company, this is being stored on a public chain and the loyalty tokens are exchangeable. I think that that is an interesting concept, but the marketing and implementation is pretty disappointing. And, and I think you've hit upon something there. There's a third-party supplier here called Waves, and I'm willing to bet what they're trying to build is more of a platform. I don't know. I'm not close to it. I'm speculating entirely, but I've seen a number of organizations. There's Loyal based out of uh, Dubai. There's, there's many others uh, that are trying to build this interoperable loyalty points so that I can take my uh, retail store card points and I can exchange them for Netflix time or for Spotify minutes. or And just having that interoperability of my loyalty would be really nice. And for some people, there are winners and losers in that. But actually, wouldn't it be cool if, if I could gift something really easily to somebody who's a, from, from the UK to somebody who's a Hulu user in the US and try and take my money and do that? Like That interoperability would be really cool. But those loyalty points and schemes tend to be very expensive. Um, Walmart famously 
don't have a much of a loyalty scheme, especially in the UK with Asda, because they believe that the cost of that loyalty scheme would impact their prices. Whereas then you have Tesco, the major retailer in the UK, that believe their success is built on their loyalty scheme, but then do ha- does have slightly higher prices and, and redemption. So it's an interesting business model question about should they be interoperability and what benefits to the consumer would there be? And is there the second order question is, and would people buy or sell and trade these things? Because actually how much is one? On air mile worth versus a, a, a store card point. So I, I mean, the one thing that I kind of, I mean, this is maybe just me being dumb, but I, I don't get it, right? Because like there are some uh, loyalty point schemes which are cross retailer. I found like Nectar points in the UK. I'm pretty sure you, it's like more than one place. But you have right? to get all of those retailers together, sure. signed into a consortium to do it. This yeah. is the Which idea. Is the same, you got to do that with, if you had like a blockchain interoperable. Everyone's got to agree to be on interoperable. And so I kind of so don't see w- where the where the technical limitation is currently. Like it just seems that c- retailers that want to buy into interoperable it, schemes it's, it's do and ones that do don't. Cost. It's, it's the fixed upfront cost. We have to invest all of this time and energy in building this thing before we ever see a return versus the infrastructure's out there and we just turn it on. Another exciting thing is right now, if you want to interact with Nectar Points, you need to use the Nectar website or the Nectar app. But if these tokens were on an open chain, it means that we could support them in balance. And if people wanted to check the balance of their Whopper coins, they, they could do that. And they um, could do it from any other wallet and, from, and anybody could build that wallet to do it. That's right. So there's competition there. And I, I think there's an interesting thing in there. And, and I got to throw back to, to Kedim's comment about uh, you're, you're not going to make any money. Traders are going to trade. Uh, somebody's <laughs> going to make and lose money out of this because it's the thing to do. Uh, at the end of the day, um, let's not forget that all of these things have a real world impact on financial statements and balance sheets. Um, generally, they become a liability because if you have a million Whopper points, at some point, Burger King's got to give you Whoppers. If these things start to have a bigger dollar value because people are speculating on it, that could actually crush your financial statement. Let's let's not forget the the impacts that this really could kill the company if it did take off and all of a sudden a Whopper coin is worth 18 Whoppers in real life. I don't know. Uh, it depends on how they structured it, but however they set them up, they need to be thinking about the the business and financial aspects as well. Yeah. But but I think Colin's point's an interesting one that this this what you've rightly pointed out I think is a nice little bit of publicity tagging onto some hype could have real world consequences if you are a major business and if you were thinking I'm just going to do a nice little PR stunt and I'm going to call it a cryptocurrency actually there could be major consequences to that and it's really worth thinking that through uh, especially as Colin says traders going to trade man they're they're going to find a way to trade this thing and change the price <laughs> and 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 make it make it make sense for them um and see some upside uh but we're going to move on uh the the story that is ethereum the second largest uh cryptocurrency in the land was due to be doing its own upgrade uh, a new version of ethereum was due to be launching called metropolis but there's an article on coindesk that says this could be months away so richard could you tell us a little bit about um what metropolis was supposed to be and step back and just explain ethereum like uh, the 32nd version as well yeah, so whereas Bitcoin uh, is mainly focused around transactions, Ethereum is largely focused around computations. Uh, and that allows you to do um, more kind of interesting uh, smart contracts and certain types of intricate transactions that are encoded on the Ethereum blockchain. And so, for example, you might want to trigger 
a payout uh, based on a piece of information about the price of wheat um, in some kind of insurance contract, or you might want to describe um, tokens that would be powering a new kind of protocol, which is uh, one of the reasons Ethereum has grown so much, is it's become the kind of bedrock for a whole bunch of other token-based projects. And um, there are people even describing the shares of a company using the Ethereum uh, blockchain and smart contracts. And so, um, like any protocol, there are lots of things that it needs that, that needs to improve at all times. And as far as I understand it, uh, Metropolis is a proposition for a bunch of new updates to the Ethereum protocol. Um, I think that the most interesting uh, one to pay attention to in Metropolis is that. Um, it is laying the groundwork for people to use applications on top of Ethereum without needing to actually send in Ether. So right now, nearly all of the distributed applications that you can use on top of Ethereum, so for example, the Ethereum uh, naming service, which allows you to register a domain name and link it to an Ethereum address, you have to actually send the contract um, uh, some Ether in order for it to function. But uh, And this is uh, perfectly fine for buying a domain, but if you were using Facebook and every single time you clicked on a link, it asked you to send a little bit of money, that friction would just make you reach the point uh, where you didn't use Facebook. And so this huge update, one of the major things it will allow us to do is create distributed applications where the developer can kind of pre-fund the transactions and they can pay the gas price, but other people can use it. So I think that this is going to massively drop the barrier for creating distributed applications. And it's going to, uh, so people will be navigating to websites, clicking on links, benefiting from services, and they won't even know that it's running on the Ethereum chain at some point. And that, to me, is a, a really potentially exciting development. That's very cool. Colin, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, so what I, I want to talk about in this, and I think uh, there's lots of really cool features in there, like the one about um, how to make this easier through pre-funding. But I think that the real key thing in Ethereum being, let's say, more successful in innovating recently is that they have pre-planned that they will have batch releases of upgrades and some of these upgrades, if they were in Bitcoin, would be really, really um, contentious. Ethereum's community has kind of come around these these ethos and said, well, we want to upgrade. We want to pr- improve. We don't like the way that Bitcoin's doing it. And they bought into this idea. And even if things will maybe take longer than they were originally envisaged to do, they're still that willing to say, let's make a, a batch of changes as we go along. And hopefully that can carry on in the future. Um, there's four pre-programmed stacks coming up. We're currently in the second phase. This metropolis will be the third. And we're looking, um, I believe it's still about a year out until we get to that fourth stage, in which case I imagine they'll have a, a further roadmap down the line. No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is a very different governance model to Bitcoin, and it does a lot more. As Richard said, this is more of the Swiss army knife type approach. You can do just about anything and in a distributed way. So instead of having uh, all of my code running inside my company and my data center or even running inside Amazon's data center, now it runs for everyone everywhere. And that sometimes is, is a really useful design idea. And there are a whole bunch of things that need to be upgraded there. Uh, new upgrades coming along makes complete sense um but this idea that you've got to interact using a currency that you may not have heard of is quite difficult i suppose um so we've got another story here uh, this is more on the institutional side it looks like bank of america has filed nine more blockchain patent applications colin are they uh, taking over the world one patent at a time here uh, we'll, we'll see um i this has been something that we've seen from a couple of different mostly banks uh coming out talking about um, joining things like R3, which were aimed to be open-sourced ways that um, 
big financial institutions and other in- institutions could come together and use blockchain technology in some way, shape, or form, or DLT technology uh, more correctly, uh, distributed ledger technology. What was really interesting is several of those banks very famously um, – Goldman Sachs came out and said, we're going to start trying to put uh, patents in the US around some of the things we're doing on blockchain, which kind of conflicted with uh, working in this consortium mode in an open source mode. My big question is whether they'll really be able to police these, whether they'll have any um, ability to go to court and sue somebody that's using something, because a lot of what they're doing is not um, that new. Uh, A lot of it is actually taking inspiration from actual open source things, which have um, prior art out, which is to say somebody else has invented it, not them. And they're trying to put a a patent on top of it. Uh, I I don't really know where they're going with it other than maybe to do a bit of marketing around um, how good they are at doing this. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts. I think there was a view at some point where it was um, seen as if this thing's become big and one bank goes to own it, if we've got some patents, at least we've got some leverage. I think that was the fear is that like uh, it was a way of preventing rather than attacking. But then everybody saw the defensive position somebody else was taking and everybody got defensive in result. I mean, I don't know if this is uh, a signal of we really understand this subject and we really know what we want to develop. It may be, but it's not like when people look at Apple patent applications and go, ah, that's what they're going to launch in a couple of years. I mean, Richard, do you have views on that? Yeah, I just feel this is really disappointing. It shows that they completely misunderstand what's going on. Um, right now, we have this enormous legacy closed traditional banking system where all of the assets are stored on SQL databases run by individual companies competing with each other. And then there's this tiny little upstart shoot of, of kind of open chains where all of the code is shared and where anybody can contribute and where we all learn from each other's mistakes. And it's growing a lot faster than the traditional system. And that is where all the interesting innovation is happening. When I see Bank of America patenting things, it just shows me that the management doesn't understand that they would be better placed contributing to open source projects than trying to own and run things with with patents. It's worth talking about the benefits because open for open sake is lovely and we could we could sing come by R, but actually the it's not open for open sake that's the benefit of some of this open like banks all kind of do the same stuff and they all do it independently of each other and they all do it on proprietary code bases and hardware. And if they're doing the same things, then there's a lot of inefficiency there when they try and communicate with each other as they do those same things. And if somebody goes out and builds the best version of it, why wouldn't you just plug into that rather than repeating the whole process for yourself it's kind of like having uh, a production factory in order to drive a car that builds your own cars it it, it seems unnecessarily and whenever an industry has come together and built market structure it's pushed cost out of the industry and it's been able to create new efficiencies and they they have history and banks have previous of creating market structure lord knows there's there's not a lack of exchanges there's not a lack of csds there's not a lack of middlemen that that did that but what's different here is the model what's different here is the mindset and i really wonder if the jury's out as to whether banks can truly embrace open yet but we we may see that there are a number of banks that joined the enterprise ethereum alliance for instance 
Yeah, I mean, a great example is is the DAO. We all learned from that mistake. Um, the the parity multi-signature wallet implementation, we all instantly learned from that mistake. And yeah, these are terrible things where people have lost money, but also we fixed them quickly as a community and, and moved on. And I think there's something really interesting about that idea of failing in public and adapting quickly and making that change. Because in financial services, you people don't find out you failed for five years, but the cost is much greater. But actually, you hide some of the other failures, so you kind of feel like it's good to, to kind of have that closed closed door i mean Kadim, do you have a view on to uh, either of these approaches do you think it's kind of naive that we might just hope that opening a source solves everything for us um i mean i think i don't know i the sort of like dichotomy of sort of well banks are sort of closed and other people are open i mean it doesn't necessarily work i mean there are lots of uh not lots but you know there are there are places where banks you know cooperate with each other there are places you know Almost every like technology firm does use open source um, to a certain extent, but at the same time, I, I do think it's a little bit uh, idealistic to sort of say that a company should do all its code out in public because um, you know it's I am I, I, sympathetic to the view that it's hard for a bank to to, to put all its code out in public and to and to have that process uh, be in the glare of the uh, of the you know the public spotlight. Um, I do th- I mean just on the IP uh, the patent stuff. I mean I was talking to a IPO guy about cybersecurity patents recently, and uh, the two things he sort of told me were one, uh, sure, the stuff you're filing may not be like original, um, it kind of doesn't matter um, because you know, like there's almost everything has prior art. Um, it's like it's very, it's almost impossible to put something out there that is truly um, original. And secondly, it's uh, partly a tactic um, to throw other people off the scent of what you're actually doing. So you put out all these um, uh, patent applications about a whole bunch of stuff. You don't necessarily put out patent applications about the stuff that you really care about just yet. So it may just be misdirection. Just to be clear, I'm, I'm leveling that accusation at Bank of America's management, not banking in general. I've met lots of interesting people and, pro- and you know, uh, seen lots of incredible projects that have been sponsored and funded by banks. And I think there is a nuance to to, to Kadim's other point, which is um, you might not be able to put all of your code out there, but maybe you could be involved in doing it more. And we do see that um, a lot of banks are involved in uh, R3's Corda initiative. And Corda, of course, is open source and, and Hyperledger as well is open source. And, and what I actually find interesting about both of those projects is it's the first example i've really seen it apart from across jp morgan and uh quorum uh is banks were big consumers of open source for for decades they're big users of red hat and linux and uh, many others mongodb and and so on but this is the first time they're creating that code as an industry to solve industry problems to, to my mind anyway there may be people who are screaming at their phone right now saying no i know of another example but this mass collaboration i think is is quite new uh, but i gotta move on um so for uh for martin who works for 11fs uh, that's uh, that's just one for him uh so uh combined story here colin we've seen canada um looking to regulate icos and tokens we've seen china potentially looking at rules and in investigations around ICOs and tokens, and the SEC has suspended the trading of a public listed Bitcoin company and issued guidance around ICOs and scam. As the regulator, should we scream the regulator is coming, the regulator is coming? Was Preston Byrne right all along? Well, let's never let Preston Byrne be right. Um, What we did see a while ago, and we talked a lot on the show about, was the SEC, um, that is the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, the the regulator for securities, um, speaking about how uh, the DAO in particular uh, was a, a security and thus should be regulated as a security. Uh, they didn't choose to take enforcement action at the time, though they did reserve the right to do it in the future. 
Um, what was really interesting to see is the SEC has come back and they've suspended a company uh, that used to be a gold uh, mining company and they never found any gold. And they decided all of a sudden, you know, we can't find any gold. Maybe we should get into this Bitcoin deal. Um, they they didn't decide to publish too many financial reports, which became a problem. Um, and there was speculation whether they actually found any Bitcoin because they didn't turn up in their financial reports that are more than a year out of out of date. So we don't know too much. Um, they came out and said, this this maybe isn't great. Um, but on the other hand, they did publish out to everybody in the world um, more risk to actual investors about ICO scams. And we have talked a bit about um, a lot of these ICOs have um, very good intentions, some of them perhaps less so. And they are warning that it is something that is rife taking out of the fact that people have raised a lot of money. And some of these may be for um, less uh, altruistic reasons. Uh, China, very interesting, has looked at um, fundraising in general, crowd crowdfunding. Um, theirs is a bit more severe. Um, if if somebody's caught breaking their rules, uh, the death penalty is not off the table. Um, so I would advise people definitely consider regulations in China if they're planning on doing anything uh, around ICOs. Uh, Canada, maybe not death penalty, uh, but still they've come out very much along the same lines of the SEC and said many of these things might actually be securities. And Canada, like the US, is very strict on securities regulations for your average investor. They might even be really sorry about having to enforce the regulations, but bless them, they're going to come and get you. Um, this is an interesting time that we find ourselves in. There's there's definitely, I think, a, a view that uh, the guys over at um, R3 and several folks working in, in the Hyperledger project have had for some time, which is uh, existing financial products for uh, regulated financial institutions can't use uh, things like token sales, can't be involved in it because the regulatory response may not be positive and their compliance teams wouldn't wouldn't allow it through and there does now appear to be a wave of regulatory regulatory interest in some of the space uh, and as Karim was saying earlier there's a real risk that mum and pop get burned here um, there are scams out there there are a lot of scams out there that you could easily wade into and so it's no surprise that the regulator has caught interest I always want to balance that though um, interesting Richard's company balancer here but I want to balance that with the idea that that doesn't mean that this whole space is intrinsically bad, um, but it, it's actually probably quite a good thing that some of the scams are, are cleared out. I mean, would, Richard, do you welcome the involvement of regulators? Do you think it's, it's or is it just trying to kill innovation? Where, where do you stand on that? I think they're approaching it in a, in a really good way. I mean, there are so many ICOs which have fantastic intentions, but are raising just absurd sums of capital. These are teams where, you know, they've got an idea, they've got a little bit of code, they've got a kind of half put together website, and then they're looking for, you know, over $50 million of digital currency to help them get to the next stage. Um, one of the things I'd really love to see is some kind of fusion of the crowdfunding regulation that the SEC spent a lot of time implementing and the token model. And so that is to say teams can go out and raise kind of one to five million dollars um, uh, from regular people and where they actually identify all the people involved. And then they can kind of get to the next stage of development and ask for more capital at a later stage. I think that there are many things wrong with the venture capital model. And that perhaps is what is fueled some of the uh, hype around ICOs. But raising the right amount of capital relative to the stage of your project is not one of the things that's wrong with it. I think there was a fantastic article from Fred, Fred Ersham on Medium where he was talking about how you could design funding mechanisms into a protocol. So uh, new coins could be created that are funneled towards GitHub issues and, and, and kind of help grow a protocol. And so that means you wouldn't need to raise 100, 200, 
even $300 million up front for the one raise to kind of help your protocol get off the ground. But Kadam, isn't the size of these raises what's getting people interested? Like, isn't the fact that there's 250 million, 230 million numbers floating around going to be what makes this crossover into the mainstream? And, and actually, by, by removing that, do you remove some of the allure of, of this space? Um, I mean, it depends the allure for who, because, <laughs> um, I mean, I, 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 you know, I wish I had the sort of chops to put together um, and the connections put together like a big ICO and raise $200 million, um, et cetera, set up a foundation, whatever. Um, because it just, it, it just astonishes me, um, that people are able to do that and that they think it's sort of a sensible thing to do. I mean, there's a, it's a long, long held view that, um, raising too much money too soon is a, a problem, not a, a good thing. Um, that seems to have gone out the window these days. I do think the SEC thing is interesting, and I'm sort of borrowing this from uh, Matt Levine at Bloomberg, who wrote on it today. He pointed out that you know this is this sort of um, uh, this firm that was suspended. Um, I mean, this is this is just like a tiny, tiny sort of penny stock that has for some reason exploded in price and, and it's gone down. I mean, that sort of stuff is uh, pretty common. I mean, it's not you know it has the word Bitcoin on it, so it's somehow like a big deal. But you know, that's pretty. A pretty common occurrence um, in those kind of markets, um, but that's not really what's going on in this space, right? What's going on is uh, someone raising two hundred million dollars um, uh, for a token, three hundred million dollars, however much it is, and that's uh, that's really where the big question is. And, and he likened it to you know searching for your keys um, under the lamp under the under the streetlight, um, and uh, suggested well the SEC might be cracking down on this stuff, but it's, it's easier for the SEC to crack down on this stuff, and they don't have to answer serious questions about you know. A, are you going to regulate this market? Um, B, how are you going to do it? C, um, are you going to come up with new legislation or new rules? Um, the more difficult stuff. So it's interesting that, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily see this as a, like a Bitcoin specific move. It's sort of like an, an easy win for them and doesn't really tackle the more difficult questions. I think there's a couple of things going on here, isn't there? Because there's the, uh, the general sweep up of scams is, is part number one and the sort of, um, more specific approach by global regulators towards ICOs and token sales. Because the, the scams are out there. There are a number of people for every token sale or even around Bitcoin for every cryptocurrency. There are a myriad of scams and it doesn't surprise me that, um, regulators such as the SEC are now trying to stamp those out and, and deal with them accordingly. But then there are people who are the actual token sales, the actual projects, the Tezos, the EOS, the Filecoins, and so on, who are raising vast sums of money. And how they do that is is somewhat new and nuanced and different. And a lot of these people are taking a lot of legal advice and they're doing things you know, that a lot of money raised gets you some pretty smart people. And this may become a path that becomes well-trodden, uh, but perhaps we will see consequences with how they've done that. I just don't know. Colin, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, I, th- I think we just all need to be very careful careful that we're not um, too engrossed in reading the tea leaves on this. I mean, there, there is nothing illegal about raising a lot of money. Now, there's a lot of business questions about why somebody would need to raise that much money. And I'm, I'm definitely one of the people asking those questions. But let's, let's not all run to the regulators just to say, we need regulations because somebody's raised a lot more money than I would have. If, if you're a big investor and you're looking at these, there's certainly going to be things in here that are very good returns on investment. Let's not forget that when Ethereum raised $19 million, everyone decried this is a big scam. What's Ethereum worth now? $28, $30 billion by today's market cap? That's a pretty good return on investment only three years on. And there will be others. Um, 
what's really interesting is to see how individuals are getting into this alongside institutions as well. Um, and that's something that is very different if you're an institutional investor to think uh, a lot of this ticket's going to have to go to somebody who's just your average Joe on the street. And that may have actually challenge your business model as well. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you're totally right. I mean, it's not um, it's not illegal to raise a ton of money. I and mean, the thing that's fascinating to me is, A, we haven't, I mean, usually this stuff gets uh, figured out when someone has a big legal fight over it um, or something bad happens. Um, and so I guess we'll, you know, with some of these larger fundraisers, the risk that it could all go wrong is much higher because there's a greater likelihood people will be annoyed. Um, but B, what I find really fascinating is the kinds of um, disclosures or risk warnings that go into some of these larger fundraisers because like some of them are really, I mean, I, I did a post about Filecoin, um, and two of its sort of risk factors. Um, one of them was, uh, I'm paraphrasing here. One of them was, uh, the people involved in this fundraise may do things that, uh, are to the detriment of other investors in this, uh, fundraise. And then the second one was, you may not be able to, um, have information about, like, what's going on with the investment itself. And that kind of stuff just makes me kind of curious. Yeah, and I'd love to end on a positive note. I think uh, some ICOs are really exciting. I mean, the one that I've paid a lot of attention to recently is uh, Zero X Project that are trying to build a decentralized exchange so you can move from one digital asset to another. And the way in which they designed their sale was fantastic. Um, they pre-registered all of the community and they gave everyone an equal share and they raised a sensible sum of capital. Um, and I think it's going to do, you know, it's, it's going to do very interesting things. Um, I, I'm not against people raising a lot of money. I'm just uh, cautious when you start to raise nine figures with a team that's previously used to dealing with a kind of low seven-figure sum. That's this, how I feel. No, this makes complete sense. We should uh, we should highlight good practice where we see it from from our perspective as people who've been in financial services or watching financial services for a number of years. You, you're doing your own crowdfunding, Richard, and I guess yeah. you, you're doing it a little bit differently. How are you doing it differently and why? Uh, yeah, we decided to go for crowdfunding because um, we just want to raise a relatively small sum of money and deliver a lot of software. And um, from our perspective, the crowdfunding has been a massive success. I mean, uh, it's it's well on track to raise the million dollars that we set out to raise. Um, and by crowdfunding standards, it's raising that money quite quickly. But by any ICO standards, it's incredibly slow. And we've been trying to figure out why that is. And one thing we've paid attention to is is that nearly all of the people who are buying into these new protocols are wanting to know when it's going to be listed on an exchange and so they can flip it. And so I'm quite happy that we're attracting hundreds of investors in our company instead of, um, you know, thousands of people who just want to flip our coin. And that's one of the things that's making me concerned about some of the ICOs is that if you look at the Twitter support requests, if you look at the people who are getting in touch with the founders of these protocols, they're not saying, how can we help your project succeed? How can we build interesting things on top of it? They're saying, when are you going to list your coin on an exchange so I can get out of this position inside a week? And that's the kind of stuff that concerns me. I got to close this out, guys. This has been a bumper news show. Uh, of course, Richard, where can people find out more about you? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter as Rick Burton, R-I-C-B-U-R-T-O-N. If you'd like to invest a hundred bucks in us, you're more than welcome by heading to wefunder.com slash balance. Beautiful. And Kadim, where can people find out more about you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Kadim Schuber and I write on Alphaville at ftalphaville.ft.com. And Colin. Colin G. Platt on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, that's it for the news. I'm going to throw to a quick promo and then we're back for an interview with Taylor Mohan from My Ether Wallet. 
so we are going to blockchain live on the 20th September at the brewery in London. I'll be chairing the main stage and it promises to be a fantastic event with an agenda packed full of amazing and insightful speakers. If you want to join us there, Blockchain Insider listeners can get a whopping 50% discount off the tickets using the following discount code M11FS. Come join us in London and I'll see you soon. That's M11FS. Check us out. All right. I'm here with Taylor Monahan, co-founder of My Ether Wallet. Thanks for coming on the show, Taylor. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So uh, welcome from uh, sunny San Francisco. We want to talk to you today about a couple of different things that are really interesting. And a lot of our listeners are trying to find out more about. First, what is a wallet and what is My Ether Wallet? That is an excellent question. So I'm going to try to start really, really broad and then we'll we'll dial in in a little bit. In the traditional world, you have um, like a bank account. So you go to the bank, you'll open your bank account, and then you'll have things like checks or debit cards in order to spend your money. Um, in this crazy new cryptocurrency world, you don't really have this like real world tangible nature of things. And everything is based on cr- cryptography. So your wallet is not necessarily like a debit card or a checkbook. Um, instead, Everything is just like this, this, uh, it's just basically a bunch of like numbers and characters. And so what we do is we, uh, we have like an interface that you can see and you can click buttons. Um, and it gives you recommendations and it shows you important information. And it, in the end, it just is like, you know, it's similar to a traditional bank account in, in that you can see your balance. You can send your funds from one place to another. You know, you can, uh, get the information so people can send funds to you. And specifically with Ethereum, um, we have like some special interaction with, uh, like smart contracts, uh, specifically the ENS, which is, uh, gonna be like a, a DNS system. That's, that's so, we have these big long, um, mishmash of numbers and letters right now in an Ethereum account. And this is so we can have something friendly like dot ether names. So we could have, wallet.ether or something like that? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, right now Ethereum and, and most um, digital currencies and blockchain is is so developer-focused, not a lot of UIs out there, uh, and not a lot of those little nice-to-have things. So the ENS aims to give you a really easy way um, to have human-readable names. So you do a lot of things to make this easier, more friendly for your average human being to use something, right? Yeah. Our goal is definitely to um, make this whole world more accessible. So, you know, little things like buttons or air messages or warnings, um, you know, those are, those are where we're at right now. And moving forward, we really hope to improve, you know, in order to enable anyone who, who wants to interact with Ethereum to be able to do so. And to use to use my Ether wallet, do I need to download the whole Ethereum blockchain or do you do that for me? How does that work? Um, yeah, so basically uh, you don't have to download the blockchain to use my Ether wallet. What we do is we have, um, it's called a node and we have our own nodes. Um, and then we also have partnerships with Etherscan and Infura. And so um, at any time you can connect to any of these nodes on the network and send uh, your transactions through those. So instead of having a local instance uh, where you have your own node and you're sending through that, uh, we basically have a group of distributed nodes that you can send through. 
Oh, cool. So I, I don't have to only trust one copy of that. I can actually go to multiple ones so that it, even though I'm not hosting my own, I don't have to trust on one single service to do all the work for me. Yeah, exactly. So like there are um, instances where, uh, you know, we see huge spikes of traffic. And what this does is it's, uh, you know, if, if our set of nodes goes down or if inferior sets of nodes are being really slow, it's okay. You can just switch to another one. Well, that's really cool. So I, because it's easier to use and because you guys have been around, I think you were one of the, the first wallets to kind of get out there on the Ethereum blockchain, if I'm not mistaken. You guys must be seeing lots of new people coming in. Can you talk to us a bit about traffic, new users? Are you seeing uh, an uptick? What What have you seen as of late? <laughs> yeah, an uptick would be an ups- uh, understatement. Starting in about February, March, we saw the price of ETH uh, increase. And I'm not going to speculate on whether uh, new users were causing that spike or whether the spike was bringing in new users. But basically, the price of like an Ethereum, uh, an Ether coin went from, I don't know, like about $20 to like about $100 in the matter of weeks. And ever since then, uh, we've seen just huge, huge growth. We don't like explicitly track, um, like we don't have Google Analytics, but to give you an idea of um, the number of transactions that we're sending, uh, January, February, March, we'd maybe see like an average of like 10,000 transactions being sent a day. Uh, and then it really just started growing, started growing, started growing. And I made the mistake of thinking that the growth was tied to, uh, the price. I just figured the price is going up. The growth goes up. Okay. Uh, and then when the price kind of stagnated around June, our growth like basically went exponential on us. Um, it caught us quite off guard. In June 21st, we sent 400,000 transactions a day. And then right now, um, on average, you know, it fluctuates a lot, but on average, we send between 50K and 100K transactions per day. And that's compared to earlier this year, 10,000. Yes. So you, you 10X that within the course of a few months. Mm-hmm. That's that's absolutely insane. <laughs> Do you have any numbers around how um, uh, the number of users more? Is it kind of on the same level? Did we see maybe maybe not unique users, but uh, new wallet creations? Is it on that same level? Is it more? Is it less? Yeah. So the way that we work, um, you know, we're known as like what's it's called a client side interface, which means that um, at our core, our functionality basically happens solely on your browser and your computer. So it's served to you and then uh, it's there. And we, because of the, the uh, ecosystem right now and the community and our users, you know, we really value our users' privacy and we really value um, the security and the privacy of the ecosystem. So we don't have like, we just don't have Google Analytics or anything. I can tell you that our support tickets went from about 30 a day uh, to about end of June, our top was 1,000 a day. And then right now we've kind of settled back down about 200 a day. Can I, can I speculate on that? Because you, you put out a, a post a little while ago talking about specifically initial coin offerings or token sales. Were many of them related to that? Oh, yeah. So our, our number one day for support tickets was um, June 21st, which was the status ICO. So, you know, I would say 
a majority, like when we see spikes like that, it's always related to an ICO. But, you know, the support tickets have definitely grown just right along with our sends. And if you look at our Twitter followers, if you look at, you know, these kind of things that we don't have a super great, accurate number of unique users, everything is just about on average up about 10 X in, you know, four months. <laughs> so can I, can I just kind of dwell in on that a bit more? Because that, that's really interesting that you have a lot of people coming in for ICOs that, I mean, you don't make any money necessarily out of uh, an ICO coming through and users coming in to use your wallet because of that. How do you deal with that influx of people raising money that isn't going to you um, and needing to use your service to get there? Yeah. You know, it's been one of these things that, um, you know, from like a, a reactionary emotional level, when we see a huge influx of tickets that we need to deal with and they're not necessarily regarding like our product, you know, it, it, the initial reaction that we have is like, oh, this is obnoxious. This is terrible. Like we shouldn't have to be doing this. Um, you know, but we kind of try to take a step back and, you know, try not to be children about it and realize that this space is so new and so early and bringing new users into the space and help helping educate them um, and helping them be successful, whether it's our product or not, like that at its core is something that we want to do. So, you know, while we may kind of, uh, you know, bitch and moan about it, you know, at the end of the day, this is, this is kind of why we got in the space. This is why we do these things. And I do, you know, it's, it's a love hate relationship. I, I think that's a really good way to look at it. I mean, there, there's the good with the bad. It's good to get more users because of course that, that helps develop the rest of the ecosystem dealing with somebody else's problems um, because the users have to talk to you first is not always the, the best thing when you wake up early in the morning and you have a thousand tickets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think one of the most exciting things about sort of Ethereum and, and even though I personally am not a big fan of like the ICO model, you know, we have to admit that these ICOs are getting people excited and the promises of these products and the teams and the development you know, even if an ICO uh, or a specific idea doesn't end up working out, it is going to make this ecosystem stronger. So whether that's, um, you know, forcing us to upgrade our infrastructure uh, sooner rather than later, or whether it's uh, nailing down some of like the protocol level um, handling of like large scale transactions, or whether it's just bringing a more diverse audience in, you know, right now we're seeing, uh, a majority, you know, majority white male, you know, de- developers or dev friendly people. Um, and in the future, I'd really like to see obviously more women in the space, but, you know, more designers in the space, more creatives in the space, not necessarily just these sort of um, like engineer types. So, you know, for better or worse, I think in the long term, uh, we're going to make it. And I think the ICOs are just going to uh, speed up that process a bit. Yeah. That is a fantastic point. I mean, um, one thing that I've really admired about the Ethereum community compared to some of the other cryptocurrencies out there is there is really kind of that push, as you, you talked about, to bring more people into the fold, whoever they are. Um, because for a distributed, decentralized movement, you do really kind of need to bring a, a large number of people in and they can't all be the same. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Diversity is really... I, I mean, I find it immensely important. And when I look at projects and when I look at teams and, you know, even when I look at our own product and our hiring, you know, um, 
it's like we're missing I feel like we're missing perspectives that we should have just because, you know, the type of people that even know what cryptocurrency or blockchain or Ethereum is, uh, is really limited right now. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the future where, uh, we can expand on that. And can I explore that a, a bit more with you? Um, so a lot of our listeners are maybe a bit newer to the crypto space. Um, they are not always developers. We do have some developers that listen and we hear, we love to hear from them. The people that aren't developers, though, how can they get involved? Um, what types of things are you looking for as a company from non-developer hires and, and developer hires as well? Um, yeah, so, you know, we try, like, we've been hiring pretty consistently since about May. And we have a team of 12 now. And I think we're about 50-50 split. So we have, like, non-developers, 50%, developers, 50%. Um Right now, specifically, we're really looking to expand, uh, like our education outreach and support efforts because, um, we're realizing that in order to cut down, like, the number of just purely, like, support tickets or support emails, like, the underlying knowledge that's available to people in this space needs to be improved. So, you know, creative people that can do, like, infographics, like, Ethereum doesn't really have infographics. <laughs> um, people that can really, um, sort of explain Ethereum as a concept or explain some piece of Ethereum, you know, in a way that um, makes sense to them is going to allow uh, someone else in the future who thinks or learns in the same way as that person to understand it. So right now, you know, like everything, all these like knowledge is, is like this really dense, heavy text-based content. And so right now our focus is like, how do we, put this in different formats, whether that's like YouTube videos or infographics or visuals or uh, little animations or, you know, whatever we think will help people really grasp the underlying concept of Ethereum and then uh, our wallet and then how everything like ties together and they can be safe and secure and uh, happy. So, so bringing everything kind of back to, to everybody else in a way that hopefully uh, a wider audience can understand. I think that's that's a really good thing. Uh, we try to do that on the show, and hopefully, people are appreciating that. If people want to continue on that, maybe they should be reaching out to you as well. Can I just switch gears here? And I want to I want to ask about uh, new people coming in. Something I see kind of in the ICO space, often in the ICO space, there are a lot of scams going on, um, and I know that uh, people tend to prey on uh, new users coming into these. And a lot of these scams actually are, are phishing sites built off of, of your website. Um, how how can people avoid these? And, and what are you doing to kind of help people? Uh, yeah, so definitely one of the biggest downsides of seeing this rapid growth and, uh, you know, an immense amount of new users. And also, you know, one thing that I... I personally like think that we sort of failed on was seeing this uh, coming. Like none of us saw this, this many new users entering the space this early. So, you know, whenever there's more money and more new users, there's going to be more scams and more people that uh, just kind of want to cash out. The biggest one, which started about July, actually I know it was because it was July 5th is like the phishing sites. And so, you know, 
in order for us to have like developers be able to trust us, especially in the really early days where we didn't have like a name and we hadn't established this trust and reputation, you know, we are a hundred percent open source. You can look at our code, you can contribute to our code. You can make sure there's no malicious code, but you can also uh, take our code and add malicious code and like put it on a different URL. So while the intention is that, you know, we have a wider range of contributors who can add features or uh, fix typos or whatever, there's also, you know, the ability for scammers to basically clone our site, put it up on a similar URL, and then um, use whether that's email or Reddit or Slack is the really, really, really popular one right now to, to push this, this fake URL. And so, you know, we're seeing like my Ether wallet with one L or my uh, Ether wallet where like the T and the H are switched. And unfortunately, like a significant amount of users have um, fallen for these phishing sites. And so, you know, what we're doing is we have a, we have a wide variety of like ways we're trying to uh, beat the fishers, I guess, which is, um, not the easiest thing. We've talked to a lot of people, um, people who've worked at Facebook, uh, people who've worked at Coinbase. They've been super, super helpful, you know, and they're, they're kind of like the biggest takeaway is like, you'll never stop the fishers, but you can cut them up and make their lives miserable. And so that's what we're doing. Um, we have tools that basically we have automated tools where you can report and then these file takedown reports with like the uh, hosts and the registrars. Um, or like the SSL cert providers, anyone we can reach. We have um, tools where if the user installs a Chrome extension and then they visit a URL uh, that's like a malicious URL, it'll basically block them from accessing it. We do outreach to the ICO communities and the Slack uh, communities to basically warn both the admins of that Slack and then also the users in that Slack that you know don't trust links anywhere. Don't trust links to my ether wallet. There's scams everywhere. And we're working with the zero X team, the status team, the swarm city team. We basically have a huge group chat right now where we're merging some of our efforts for like a kind of like an admin Slack bot to try to like, you know, give the people who run these slacks a little bit more power in terms of like, okay, they can delete a scammy email or a scammy DM. They can do like a mass group message to follow up on it and be like, don't click that link. Uh, they can be notified of what that URL is, which then gets filtered into uh, our other tools so that we can file takedown reports. And then also there's um, Paul is a guy who runs this company called Metacert. And he's been building a really robust product for, I think it does Slack and um, HipChat. I don't know. He doesn't, it, it does. I only know his Slack offerings, but it's like, he's built this tool for all these things. Um, and it's kind of interesting because I felt like there was, a like the market was limited to these sort of like really high end companies who, um, had, you know, a need for security because they're an established company. And now it's shifted to this crypto, like Slack community, uh, market. And it's, it's, I mean, it's really fascinating, but uh, I'm super grateful that these people can help out. Well, it's good that there's more and more support coming online. And I guess people that are getting into cryptocurrencies or even people that have been in there for a while need to never let their guard down because there, there kind of are no training wheels when you're playing with these things. 
So I think that's that's we're gonna kind of have to leave it there. But thank you very much for coming on. Can you tell us um, myetherwallet.com, how people can find out about you, how people can find out uh, more about jobs um, with you or through your your groups, and um, anything else that people need to know about what you're doing? Um, yeah. So the best way to reach me, like directly, is uh, probably via email. So it's just Taylor at myetherwallet.com. I also am the one who runs the Twitter, which is at MyEtherWallet. If you ever have like a quick question or want to say hi, um, I love Twitter mostly because the app is really, really speedy. <laughs> I'm like back on Twitter 100% now. Basically, if you go to MyEtherWallet.com in the footer, there's like a ton of resources and links and our knowledge base. Um, so you can kind of get started there. Uh, I will also note that the Reddit is sort of the forum of choice for Ethereum. So there's our Ethereum uh, there's our Ethereum newbies. And then if you're interested in sort of the ICO speculative, making tons of money space, there's our, um, Eth trader, which is, you know, a bit, a bit meme heavy and to the moony right now. But, you know, we have to acknowledge that some people are here to get rich. So let's put them in the, in the trading, in the trading Reddit. Well, if we like diversity, we've got to accept all types. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much. And everybody needs to go out and uh, check out your website, download, set up a wallet um, and get involved. Even if you're new to this, if you've been around in this for a while, definitely check out you guys. Thank you very much for coming on today, Taylor. Awesome. Thank you so much, Colin. This is really, really great. Great. Well, thank you very much, Taylor. We're now talking to Andrew Chapin at Benja. Great. So Colin and I are now here with Andrew Chapin. Andrew, how are you, sir? And thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, great that you've uh, joined us. And you, of course, are uh, working in and on a project called Benja. Can you tell us a little bit about Benja and uh, a little bit about yourself as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, so Benja is what we call a merchandise ad network. Uh, we work with top tier brands here in the States. Uh, we work with like Nike and Patagonia, uh, the National Football League, uh, and simply we, we help them sell their stuff. So we do that across a number of channels. We have some mobile apps that we own. Uh, we, we have uh, e-commerce function inside of other mobile apps. Uh, we have an interactive online display ad. We have a few other ways. Uh, and really the whole thing is just kind of changing the shopping experience um, and providing those deals uh, in places that people might not expect. Very cool. So um, then tell us a little bit about uh, kind of how you came across to look at uh, building Benja Coin and, and uh, what, what led to that decision and, and what Benja Coin is. Yeah, uh, so we're, we're doing well. I mean, we're a small ad network. Uh, we do low seven figures in revenue. We are profitable. Uh, but as we looked at this next stage of growth, you know, we went back to our vendors and said, you know, what are some of the things that, uh, that we could be doing better? What are some of your pain points with other uh, larger ad networks like Google and Facebook? Uh, and overwhelmingly, we heard three things uh, that we can get into. Um, but simply, like we, just being crypto nerds as hobbyists on the side, we knew that that a few of those things would be addressable tomorrow if we moved to a token-based uh, ad network. You know, these things are, are things like uh, the billing cycles take too long to close. Uh, we have partners who have been doing business together for years at this point. Um, and it still takes 120, 150 days to close a billing cycle, which in 2017 is just absurd. There's ad bid transparency. Um, no one really knows if they're getting a good deal. If you're an advertiser, for example, you'll go to Google. Um, you can uh, type in all the parameters for your ad. And at the end, Google gives you a price, says it's 8 or $10 CPM rate. Uh, you have no idea what goes into that calculation. You're just kind of handed a number. 
Uh, in the same way, if you're a publisher who does, for example, uh, a million uh, hits a month that you want to monetize, if you go to Google, they'll say, you know, we'll give you $1,000 or $2,000 a month for that traffic. And you have no idea if they're charging $10,000, $20,000, $3 million for that traffic, right? So there's no transparency there. Um, and finally, uh, there's the issue of bot traffic and, and false, uh, false uh, traffic. Uh, it's a huge problem in advertising. And like I said, we just knew that two of those three would be addressable uh, by switching to a token-based model. This makes complete sense. It's interesting to me that we've seen a lot of people talking about uh, disrupting changes, uh, exchanges, sorry, in financial services. But actually, exchanges in uh, advertising have been huge for many, many years and have all the same issues around transparency, but may lend themselves to delivery of that product a, a lot easier. Uh, so... We talked a little bit earlier in our news segment about regulators like the SEC and their whole approach to uh, initial coin offerings and token sales. You actually wrote a post um, in the end of July titled The SEC Called About Our ICO and I Answered. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and what? how did that conversation go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interesting. Um, uh, our ICO launched uh, August 1st. And uh, I work as part of a distributed team. So, so my, my business partner and CTO, Tommy Good, uh, lives in Austin, Texas. Uh, I live in San Francisco. And the week leading up to our ICO event, uh, I said, okay, Tommy, like, I'm going to come to Austin. You know, we're working uh, you know, side by side this whole week, you know, kind of all hands on deck. And the day that I landed uh, in advance of our event uh, was July 25th. Uh, and I landed just as the SEC put out a notice that they had investigated the DAO token uh, and had indeed uh, decided that it was a security. And so we're, we're nervous. We've got a lot of things going. Uh, we're really close to our launch. Um, and I sent an email to the SEC with a simple request. And that was just for some guidance. Uh, some, you know, what should I be looking out for? We certainly don't want to be labeled a security, that sort of thing. And frankly, um, I didn't expect to hear back. But uh, later that week, they gave me a call. Uh, I got to speak with uh, uh, one of the members in their corporate uh, finance division for about 15, 20 minutes. And, and we had a really great chat. I mean, uh, the, the advice was pretty simple. At the end of it, it was uh, speak to a lawyer and then, uh, you know, consider the, the Howey test. So what's kind of the outcome from that um, and what you were able to, to ascertain after you spoke with a lawyer that what you're selling is not a security or is it a security? Because that's an interesting point we get into a lot. Yeah, no, no. Um, the Benjacoin is certainly not a security. Uh, a key question in the Howey test is, um, you know, whether or not there's an expectation of profit uh, for people buying the token. Um, and for us, uh you know, the use case is really strong and clear. We're talking about it being basically a pre-order uh, on ad inventory that you'll be able to redeem, you know, to purchase advertising on our network once the system uh, is up and running. Um, and so it's pretty simple. It's, I mean, it's no different than Tesla accepting pre-orders for their car. So it's, it's just a, a better way, a newer way to move that stuff through the system kind of. Yeah, right. Yeah. Can you tell us, um, I mean, kind of in general, um, a lot of this is, as we said, uh, new, untested, untried. What advice would you give to startups looking at doing a token release or anybody trying to buy or invest in these tokens in any way, shape, for or people, form? For people who are looking at launching a token, the advice is pretty simple. I mean, the first is uh, don't cheap out. Talk to a lawyer. Don't run away from it. You know, the SEC, uh, if they want to find you, they're going to find you <laughs> uh, or any other regulatory body, really. So really, just just talk to a lawyer. Um, I'd take a look at the Howey test, familiarize yourself with it, ask yourself the hard question. Um, and that's really just things that, that everybody should be doing. Um, for buyers, uh, really something that I see a lot in Facebook groups and on Telegram channels and things like that 
um, is a lot of uh, like me too mentality. So, you know, <clears throat> some guy, Mike will say, Hey, I'm really looking at buying uh, token X. Um, and somebody will say like, okay, yeah, great. I just bought it too. What do they do? Right. And so they're just kind of like following along, uh, fight that fear of missing out, you know, do do some actual diligence. I know it, it kind of seems uh, ridiculous to have to say, but uh, look for companies with real revenues and assets, you know, teams that have done it before. Really, I mean, you're looking for uh, sound businesses and sound use cases for uh, for these tokens. So I think that there are unfortunately a lot of uh, cases where napkin stage ideas and companies that, that don't know how to build something are raising a lot of money. And, uh, and that's a big that's a big risk. It's interesting hearing you differentiate yourself from those as well. I think uh, the ad market has been one for some time, as you point out, has a number of issues. Um, you're now uh, kind of using this token uh, as a way of uh, changing how that ad business works. How would you look to use the, the proceeds of that, um, the, the revenue you're getting for, for selling those tokens? Is that going more towards building the business or building out the, the technology stack? And, and is it an evolution of the stack you already had? Uh, it's definitely an evolution of the stack that we already have. And, you know, a, a portion of that goes to a lot of uh, the technical undertaking. Something that's important to note is that building the ad marketplace to use the token to facilitate the transaction um, is actually rather simple. But we are really interested in that third issue I talked about earlier with the false traffic and bot traffic. And that's something that as of today is not something that a blockchain solution can really address for latency reasons, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but we're going to be focusing a lot of effort on trying to solve it. And so we're kind of doing this, this bigger um, R&D push uh, on, top of, you know, on top of the other development. Um, but yes, I mean, a lot of it, the bulk of the funds go, you know, go to growing the business. Um, you know, the ad network business is a pretty pretty boring one that, uh, you know, uh, you're really just trying to uh, purchase as much uh, digital real estate as you can get your hands on. So that's, uh, that's really where the bulk of it goes. Well, Andrew, um, I really appreciate you being on Blockchain Insider with us. Where can people find out more about your project? How can they get in touch? Yeah, uh, the project is BenjaCoin. Uh, you can go to BenjaCoin.com. I also encourage you to follow me, find me on Twitter, um, at Andrew J. Chapin. Um, we have, uh, I'm working with a group of some uh, well-known people in the blockchain space uh, to kind of standardize some of the, the white paper um, you know, information and data and try and make some of these things easier for people who are interested in buying ICOs. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, uh, we'll be talking about that on Twitter. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. As ever, a big thank you to our guests today, both for the news and our interviews. And a big thank you to you. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. I cannot tell you how much reviews help us as a budding young podcast. And tell your friends to listen too. If you like what we're doing, send me an email, simon at 11fs.com. Uh, tell me what you think or tell me why I don't get a five-star review. I love those reviews. And check out 11fs.com if you want to know more about the team who bring you Blockchain Insider every week. So whether you're off to the beach for the end of summer, going to Brighton, wherever you're going, uh, have a good week and I'll see you next week.